But in order to understand this passage, uh, we're actually going to begin uh, reading uh, from verse uh, 11. Oh, sorry, verse 12. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the, ni- the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If we just stop there for a moment and just consider that uh, short illustration uh, that Jesus gave, he's using the illustration here of a shepherd uh, going after uh, wandering sheep. Sheep that have wandered away from the safety of the fold, of the flock, and the shepherd goes and brings them back. And Jesus says this is an illustration of the love that the Father has for us. We are so valuable, so precious to God, that at the end of that little section we read that he is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. These little ones are Christians, they are God's children. And if they start to wander off, the, the, good, the, the loving father, the shepherd, goes and brings those sheep back. In the next verses, we see how God brings wandering sheep back into the fold. That's the context of the verses we're going to read in a moment. Uh, and the way uh, that, that Jesus speaks here is often uh, called church discipline. Now, I don't know what you feel when you hear uh, the words church discipline, uh, but often the feelings are negative rather than positive. But if you look at the context that Jesus is speaking here, this is very positive, isn't it? This is a, a shepherd who is going after sheep that have wandered off. That's a loving and good thing for our Father in heaven to do. Uh, You may think of Uh, excommunication when you think of church discipline, where someone is put out of membership, which is what we read about in 1 Corinthians 5. In our generation especially, this may seem harsh, uh, unloving, and judgmental. But before we read this section, there are two things about church discipline that will help to allay those fears before we delve into the passage. And the first uh, thing to understand is that church discipline is not always formal and doesn't always, and in fact very rarely, results in excommunication. Well, why is that? Well, we need to define what church discipline is. Discipline is a similar word to discipleship. You'll notice that if you just read the word, it's similar, isn't it? And discipleship is learning to follow Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to the Christian life as the narrow way. And a disciple is someone that is walking the narrow way, the way that leads to life. And discipline is what keeps us on that way. And it stops us from wandering off. Now, we can thinking of discipline this way is helpful because if you think of, for example, uh, an elite sports person, 
They need to have discipline in order not to ruin their careers. They need discipline. It's a good thing. Otherwise, their career will wander off, won't it? If a a footballer, uh, for example, in the Premier League decides not to show up to training but to stay in bed, to go out drinking late at night, to eat all the wrong kind of foods, his career will be ruined. So he has discipline to help him in his career. Now, what does discipline do? It corrects us when we are wrong and it shows us what is right so that we're better able to follow the Lord Jesus Christ on the narrow way. And we can then represent him to the world. So discipline is keeping sheep from wandering off the narrow way. And we'll see in the passage shortly that this involves not big church meetings as such, where we vote to remove a member, as much as it it involves our own personal discipline as we daily seek to follow Jesus. But it also involves living together as a, as a family of God, living together where we are able to correct each other where necessary and to show each other the right way to live, pointing each other to Jesus. Yes, that will involve difficult and uncomfortable conversations at times that tell people the way you're living is wrong. But the purpose is to keep one another walking the right way, the way that leads to life. And that leads us on to the second thing to say about church discipline. And that is, it's a loving thing to do. It's a loving thing to do. Listen to this verse from Leviticus chapter 19. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Notice there, what the, how, how are they not hating? They're not hating their neighbor by rebuking them for their sin. Jesus has been talking about the seriousness of sin in our lives in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, the verses there talk about causing his little ones to stumble. He said it would be better to die by drowning than it would be to cause one of his children to stumble. And so if sin is that serious, it is loving, isn't it, to help one fight sin in each other's lives. In fact, Leviticus tells us here that to not do so is sharing in the sin and actually hating your brother or sister. As well as being loving to the person in sin, it is also loving to the world. We want to show the world that following Jesus is the best way to live, the way that leads to life. We want to show people what being a Christian is like. And so we want those who claim to represent Jesus to do so in a way that is a signpost to him and not a stumbling block that blocks the way to him. So with those things in mind, what discipline is and how it's loving, let's see what Jesus has to say about it in Matthew 18 from verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, 
tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For when two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. What we see in this passage are three uh, truths about church discipline that help us explain how God brings back the wandering sheep. We see, first of all, the process of discipline, that is how we do it. Then we see the power of church discipline, who that power rests with. And then we see the prayer of church discipline, the attitude we have behind it. So first of all, the process of church discipline. The key word in this section, in verses 15 to 17, is the word listen. Notice that word, it appears four times in the passage. To listen means the, the need to weigh what is said and to act on it. To weigh what is said, to consider it, and then to act on it. And the assumption here is that the sin being talked about is a genuine sin that needs repented of. This isn't just nitpicking. Like, I think your hair looked better when you had it done last time or something stupid like that. This is not just something you find annoying. Like when you make the coffee at church, it's not as good as when someone else makes it. Your coffee's horrible. This is a genuine sin that is going on that needs repenting of. It doesn't have to be uh, something, uh, a car crash of your Christian life. This is just a genuine sin that needs repenting of. Now it might be a car crash, that's, we'll, we'll talk about that, but, when we're, but here we're talking about sin, not nitpicking, not annoyingness, sin. And the passage begins with, if your brother or sister sins. So what, what is it talking about when it's talking about, when Jesus talks about sin here? What kind of, of sin? Well in one sense, yes, it could be any, any sin. But if we point out every single thing that someone does wrong, Church wouldn't be a very nice place to be, would it? The words uh, point out in verse 15 mean to bring conviction of sin. So this is something that is definitely wrong according to God's word. In the context of the chapter, I think Jesus means here sin that is a, a pattern of behavior that is causing stumbling to the church and the world. A pattern of behavior a pattern of behavior that causes stumbling in the church or in the world. Now, some translations say, if your brother or sister sins against you, and the verse could be taken both ways. Some New Testament manuscripts have that in there. Some do not. But if we love our brother and sister, we will help them fight sin, whether it's against us or against someone else or, or not. So what are some examples of, of sin that needs to be dealt with in this way? 
Now, there are examples uh, we, we can give, and I'll give some examples of what Jesus is talking about here. So if you find, for example, your brother or sister telling lies, now that might be by exaggerating something they have done or deliberate and deceitful falsehoods. If you see that, you are right to tell them about this. For example, if you hear your brother or sister talking about Jesus or about the Bible uh, in a way that is in error, it's appropriate to tell them about this and to seek to correct their understanding. This may be faulty understanding, but nevertheless, we need to speak about these things. If you hear or see habits of gossip, of complaining, of anger, of criticism, it's right that we speak to one another when we see these kind of habits in one another's lives. If someone is stealing from you, not returning books or money, that's stealing. It's right that we tell our brother or sister, this is wrong. This is not right. But although not necessarily what Jesus is talking of here, I do think that we can include uh, warning one another against unwise behavior that can lead to sin. This is talking about genuine sin, but as we apply speaking to one another about our walk with Jesus and about being holy, I think, for example, if you see your brother or sister spending time alone with a member of the opposite sex, that's unwise. It's right to warn them about this. Even if nothing has happened, you can say, look, this you know, spending all that time on your own in that place, I don't think it's wise, brother or sister. If you see unwise patterns of behavior with money, perhaps excessive spending or gambling, it's right to warn our brother or sister. That, you know what, that, that could really lead down a, bad, down a bad road. If you see other unwise patterns of behavior, too much time on screens or staying up so late that you can't fulfill commitments at home, or, or not able to have a, a healthy relationship with our Father in heaven. Those things are good to, to warn about. Now, all of those things can grow and become more and more serious. Now, with these and with genuine sins, Jesus tells how to deal with this with the process of church discipline. And that first step, if you notice there in verse 15, is one to one. One to one. Jesus tells us here to speak to one another about these things privately. He says, just between the two of you. You notice there in verse 15, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So no gossiping about it. No going to someone else and saying, oh, I've got to go speak to this person about this. They're doing this. No, just between the two of you. So how do we do that? Because it's quite a difficult thing to do, isn't it, if you think about it? If you, it's, a, it's a hard conversation to go to someone and tell them that they're doing something wrong. Well, actually, a, a helpful place to look is back to Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus actually speaks there of not judging one another. Uh, when he's talking about judge, not judging, he's talking about harshly criticizing or looking down on somebody else. He's not talking about whether we're, to be, whether we're to judge anything at all. We're supposed to be a wise judge of all sorts of things, including behavior. 
And so Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 7. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in all, when we go and speak to someone about their sin, we must first of all recognize that in our own eyes, there are huge planks that we need to be removing. We need to make sure that we recognize our own sin and repent of our own sin, even confessing our sin to our brother or sister. And so when we go to help someone else, we're going with an attitude of one sinner helping another sinner to follow Jesus, not one person who's got everything right and is just living a great perfect life trying to show you how you should be like me. You see the difference there? Humility. Recognizing our own sin. And then we can see clearly and help our brother and sister. That's what Jesus is saying here. So we speak to one another with humility and love and gently explain to them how their sin is wrong from the scriptures and pointing them to a better way in God's word. You don't want to live this way. Look at, what, look at what Jesus says about this. Let's not live in that way. That direction just leads away from God. And we want to follow Jesus together. Gently. Scripturally. That's the aim of the one-to-one. And the aim of it is actually shown in Matthew 18 there, at the end of verse 15. If they listen to you, so if they weigh what is said and act on it rightly, then you have won them over. Winning them over means they're still walking the narrow way. You haven't lost them to the broad way of the world. The wandering sheep is back where they should be. And that's wonderful, isn't it? A conversation, one-to-one. Yes, the person admits they've done wrong, and they come back and they walk in the narrow way. Wonderful. James is helpful in this regard in encouraging us. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Saving from death is a loving thing to do, isn't it? If, I, if you saw someone about to walk in front of a train, it's obvious that the loving thing to do would be to pull them back so that they can live. To allow someone to just carry on in, in sinful patterns of behavior and not say anything to them when you notice that it's wrong is unloving because it's deadly, because that way leads to destruction. And this kind of discipline in the church is what should be going on in a way all the time, where we are encouraging one another to live for Jesus by correcting wrong and pointing out what's right. And in fact, right here, this is church discipline as we share God's word, isn't it? We're opening the Bible and saying, this is the right way to live. This is, this is saying this is wrong and, and all those kind of, this is part of church discipline. This is how we, we live together as, as God's people. But what happens if the person does not listen to you? They might well weigh what is said, but they just carry on regardless. Then the next step is to get others involved. Two or three to one. 
It's in verse 16. If they will not listen, and it's obvious here that the sin is uh, a genuine one, something that someone that professes to follow Christ will not choose to live in a pattern of it permanently, Jesus says, take one or two, al- two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The witnesses do not necessarily have to see the sin, but they need to see the confrontation of the, the, the sinful brother or sister um, speaking to the person that had spoken to them in the one-to-one, if you see what I mean. They have to, to see, to witness that this person admits to doing their wrong so that they can also talk to them about it too. In the Old Testament, we read many times of witnesses being needed in order to convict someone of a crime that was punishable by the death penalty. So here's a a couple of examples. In Numbers chapter 35 and verse 30, anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. For someone to end up being declared an unbeliever, which is where church discipline ends if no repentance takes place, means being declared as destined for everlasting death, the sin that causes destruction. And so that declaration dare not be made on the accusation of one person alone. So you take someone else or some, or some other people along with you. And that's good, isn't it? Because it avoids false accusation and it ensures fair treatment. That was the reason it was going on in the Old Testament there. It means also that more people will plead with the sinner to repent and live for Jesus, which may win them over. If they don't listen to one person on their own, maybe they'll listen to a couple of other brothers or sisters who are also pleading with them, don't go this way. Please come back with us on on the narrow way. Who are the witnesses to be? Well, Jesus doesn't say here, it, it could be any church member. It doesn't have to be an elder as such, although it would be most unusual, I think, for an elder not to be aware at all of sin that is so open and unrepentant going on. But take people with you to win your brother or sister over. Well, all that we've spoken of so far has been what we might call informal church discipline, a a small number of people in the church encouraging a wayward sibling to turn back. But verse 17 is where we get to what we call formal church discipline, where where the church becomes involved. It says that the, the first part there, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And so the third step is not one-to-one or two or three-to-one. It's the whole church-to-one. The church here is the the whole membership. So this is a a formal church meeting where the person and their situation is is brought before the whole church and the whole church is encouraged to pray for and encourage that wandering brother or sister to return. Now, although Jesus doesn't say so here in our church for sure, This stage would be led by elders. Why? 
because God has given the spiritual oversight of the church to the elders as the under-shepherds of the flock. We wouldn't really at a church meeting just un- unknowingly as elders turn up and then expect people to, 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 groups of people to be pointing out uh, serious sin in one another's lives. But we go to the church and we ask the church, please pray for this brother or this sister. They're wandering away. We, we desperately want them to come back. If you, if you have a relationship with them, please speak to them, that kind of thing. But there's a very serious and sad final step for the brother or sister who has not listened even to the people of God, the church, who are urging them to return back. It says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If the church has not been listened to, then the brother or sister is to be treated as a pagan or a tax collector. What what does that mean? Well, a pagan is someone who is outside the covenant community. That's what a pagan is. Someone who's not a member of the community of God's people. And a tax collector in in a Jewish culture where this was being spoken is someone who has betrayed the covenant community, covenant community. So someone that is seen as outside and who has betrayed the very people whom they committed to being a part of. In both cases, this means they are no longer declared to be Christians by the church and they're not treated as such. Their membership within that community is revoked. Now this doesn't mean... Um, Pagans and tax collectors did not become part of the church. They did. They do. But they cannot remain in their unbelief and sin. So what does this look like? Well, the answer to that question is, 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 is difficult. The answer really is it depends and it needs wisdom. For example, if someone is disciplined by the church for not attending... Well, repentance then would be then coming back to church, wouldn't it? So we'd want them to attend again. But if someone is disciplined because, for example, they're persistently telling people in the congregation lies about the Bible, we may ask them to stay away. Although I admit this is difficult to enforce because we're at a public building. A lot depends on what the attendance of the person um, uh, what, what, the per- what, the, what the person uh, coming to us would say to the watching world if we allowed them to be a part of us and what the impact would be if they came on the rest of the members within the congregation. But there are some things that take place after membership is revoked that will always be the case regardless of, w- of what the sin was for which they were re- had their membership revoked. And there are are a few things. One, they would be taken off of the membership roles. And the church would be told to treat them like an unbeliever. They would know they are no longer a member of this fellowship. And when we speak to them, we wouldn't be speaking to them like we used to. We would be telling them and urging them to respond to the gospel. We wouldn't be inviting them Uh, to come along to home group and have food with us. We wouldn't be uh, telling them to come to the members' meetings and such things. 
we would treat them as an, as an unbeliever, that they would know that what they have done is serious and things are not what they used to be. They also would not be able to lead in any capacity in the church, even if they were coming along. So, for example, if uh, uh, one of our music team uh, was disciplined because they no longer were attending the church, they, they stopped attending, uh, or that attending was extremely sporadic, for example, uh, even if they came to the church, which was show repentance, they couldn't just turn up and then start playing their instrument to lead us in worship again. And they also would not be able to, to vote at a church meeting. The normal fellowship with that brother or sister is suspended and the church will not confirm that this person is a Christian. We cannot say they represent Christ. We cannot say they are a member of this community in Pelsall. We would say that their behavior indicates that that is not the case. Now, when I worked in IT, I used to work with computers that had processes that when you input something, something definitely would happen that you want to happen. So I would write processes that would say things like, if you input Y, then X would happen. It was a flow that went easily. From one thing to the next to the next, you knew what would happen. It was predictable. There was certainty. There was clarity. Computers, uh, if you write them, the programs correctly, that's a big if, uh, work according to certain rules, always. People don't. And that is how perhaps some people feel about this passage in Matthew, that it's like a computer. Great, Jesus has given us a process. So if you do this, then this, then this, everything is fine. We're doing the right thing. However... This is not all that the New Testament has to say about church discipline. Here is an example. What happens if a married man or woman decides to leave the family home and go and live with another person? They have made up their mind and they have refused even to consider going back home, even after just one person has gone and spoken to them and said this is a wrong way to live. They've decided, I'm moving out, I've gone and lived with someone else. Do we say, then, that we should keep them as a member and declare that they're a Christian because we haven't been yet through steps two and three of Matthew's church discipline process in Matthew 18? One person's gone to speak to them, but they've decided to do this, but we've got to wait because we've got to now have two or three, and then we've got to bring it to the church. And we could have, then, a, a member of the church who's living this way, being a member potentially for months because we've got to arrange a meeting. You see, the process doesn't always work as a step-by-step, -step, this is what you have to do. Now, an example of that exact situation is what we read about in 1 Corinthians 5. A man in Corinth is sleeping with his stepmother. And the church haven't done anything about it. So Paul says, Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? He then goes on to tell them, So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Handing over to Satan here means declaring the person an unbeliever, and letting them know that this behavior is becoming of Satan's kingdom, not Christ's. 
We are saying you are now part of his kingdom, not Jesus's. This man in, in Corinth was not repenting, and the church were not supposed to wait until they'd followed these steps before they acted. Perhaps they had, we were not told, but they certainly were not doing the final part, which was declaring them to be outside of the kingdom of God. There are some situations that will require immediate excommunication. And it requires the wisdom that comes from the prayer that Jesus will talk about in verses 19 and 20. For the church to be able to discipline, though, in this way, there are two assumptions that we need to make and apply. First of all, there is accountability in the church. If we join a church, we are not joining a club, but a family where we are accountable to one another. That means we need to be willing for our lives to be seen and to be open to people speaking into them. Now, some of us perhaps need to work on that just a little bit. We do live in a very individualistic culture where privacy is highly valued. Now, there are some good aspects to privacy. But in the church, we submit to the body as a whole and as a member, we agree to commitments together that we hold one another accountable for. We have to be willing for people to come to us and speak into our lives. That's the first assumption. But the second is that there is membership in the church. If we don't have church membership, then we cannot practically exercise church discipline. Having a membership role is a, is a list of people that this congregation in Pelsall affirm to the world are Christians and are accountable to one another. How do you exercise church discipline without church membership? I don't see how you can really do so. So first of all, Jesus speaks of the process of church discipline, the way that God brings wandering sheep back. The other two points are far shorter than the first. But you may be asking a question uh, according to what Jesus has said here. And that is, who says that the members of this church can influence my life in this way? If someone speaks to me about my sin, I, I could respond and say, well, who on earth says that you can speak to me about that? This is my life. Well, the answer actually is found in verse, verse 18, where we see the power of church discipline. Look at, the, look at that verse. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now those words may be familiar to you because they were spoken to Peter in chapter 16 when he was told that he would have the keys to the kingdom. Now if you remember, the keys of the kingdom are the authority of the church to declare what the gospel is and who is part of God's kingdom. And the church represents Jesus Christ on earth. <clears throat> it's like, in that sense, a foreign embassy that speaks on heaven's behalf. So we're, we are foreigners from heaven on earth, and the church is the foreign embassy that speaks out on behalf of God's people. 
And the church under heaven has the authority given to it by Jesus to declare a person outside or inside of the kingdom of God. Uh, One writer helpfully summarizes this point uh, like this. The local church, Jesus' key-carrying institution, vouches for the credibility of a Christian's profession through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Church discipline comes into play whenever that credibility comes into question. It's driven by a single question. Does the church still believe an erring member is really a Christian, such that it's willing to continue declaring so publicly? In short, church discipline is all about the reputation of Jesus on earth. The stakes are high indeed. So if someone asks a church, who gives you the authority to say that I am not a member of the kingdom of God? You answer, Jesus did. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. The church has the authority to declare what the gospel is and who is in the kingdom. Now, church membership, as I said, is how we practically exercise this authority. Each member here is someone who has publicly been proclaimed to the world as a Christian. Our membership roles are open to the world to look at if they wanted to, uh, according to data protection and all that kind of stuff. But we are declaring you are a Christian. We, We vouch for you. This is a brother or sister, and I stand with you in the name of Jesus. That's what the church does. A church, therefore, is not a club to join, but it is the institution on earth that Jesus has put in place to be his witnesses to a watching world. We don't join a church as much as we submit to a church. However, although Christ's church has this authority, it doesn't mean that it always gets it right. Sometimes we are ambassadors who don't quite get the message and say the wrong thing. As mentioned before, rarely are situations so black and white that we can just follow a simple process. Churches need wisdom, wisdom that only God can give. And perhaps one of the reasons that so many things in our Christian lives are unclear is that it forces us to seek God for the wisdom that we need, which is why Jesus begins in verses 19 and 20 to talk of the prayer of church discipline. Notice how Jesus talks about prayers being answered in verse 19, right after speaking about having authority to discipline in verse 18. Do you notice that? What do you think the church in verse 19 would be praying for? The context is important, isn't it? So Jesus says, if two of you on earth (coughs) agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So a church here is, is a gathering of God's people who in verse 18 are given authority to exercise church discipline. And here, even if the church is as small as two people, they can pray together and ask God to help them in this case of church discipline. Perhaps they've been dealing with an unrepentant sinner and the two of them agree together as a church to remove him or her. No doubt the prayer here is probably 
for wisdom from God to lead them in the right direction as they deal with these really difficult situations, as well as praying together for this person to come back into the fold. But if there is agreement on the decision to remove the member and they have prayed about it together, then they trust that God is giving them the wisdom to do the right thing. Why can they trust God? That's verse 20. For this is the reason where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. We can trust God that as we pray for the wisdom that we need with sincere hearts, God will guide us as a church because God is with us. And that's important to grasp for two reasons. First of all, it shows how we don't take these decisions lightly, but we pray as a church. When a situation comes to our church, we need to be praying about it, praying for the person, praying that we deal with this situation rightly and well as the world is watching what we do, praying that we deal with it in such a way that would show this sinner that they are wrong, that there's a better way, and, in, and, and praying that what we do would help them return back to the fold. But secondly, this shows us that when a church is undertaking the discipline that Jesus talks of here, Jesus stands behind it. The church has authority and he is with them as they exercise it. Do churches get it wrong? Yes. But a church praying and being careful, seeking the wandering sheep out of love, can trust God for his guidance. As we draw to a conclusion, I just want to say one word about what we hope happens when someone is excluded from membership. The hope is that they come back as a repentant sinner. That the church will no longer treat them as a tax collector or a pagan, but as a brother or a sister in Christ again. They are wandering sheep that our loving Father, through his church, has brought back into the safety of the fold of the church. And in that regard, I urge you to pray for those whom you know that have gone through church discipline in our church. Let's pray that even in the years since these things have happened, that they would be sheep that have wandered off but come back into the fold of God. That's our prayer. But also, as we close, let us watch how we walk and have that personal discipline in place in our lives, living lives that are worthy of the calling to which we are called. Let us live as Christians to a watching world and to the glory of God, praying for one another as we do so. Well, we're going to close uh, with one final song, uh, which really is a, a prayer, uh, Lord of the Church. So let's stand uh, and let's sing, in this, sing this prayer for the Lord of the Church to renew us, that we would be his people together.